how many of you have ever had the thought drop into your mind, am I just crazy to believe what I believe? I mean, is any of this stuff real? God, the Bible, Jesus, am I just making this up? What if I've got it wrong? Anyone ever thought those kinds of thoughts? Pretty much everyone in the room, in spite of all that God has done in our life, in spite of story after story of answered prayer and so-called coincidences for which there is no other rational explanation and all those experiences where you'd, you'd have to say hand on heart you felt God speak to you or you sensed his spirit with you not to mention the billions of other followers of Jesus all around the world and down through human history who would all attest to these same phenomena in spite of all of this most, if not all of us, have had moments of doubt. And for some of us, that moment turns into a day or a week or a month or a whole season of our life where the assurance of what we believe is very much called into question. Now, if that's your experience, I want you to know you are not alone. You're shoulder to shoulder with a whole lot of people in this room, myself included. And you also have a tremendous amount in common with the main character in today's story, which, if you want to follow along, is found in Matthew and chapter 11. Just so you know where we're heading with all of this, if you remember what we're doing uh, through the summer months, uh, is we're looking at how the good news of Jesus, how the gospel transforms us. Uh, among other things, we've looked at how it leads us from pride to humility, from bitterness to forgiveness, from judgment to generosity, from exhaustion to rest. And our topic today, which is from doubt to trust. Uh, the, the premise running through all of this is, is pretty simple. If we actually lived in the good of what we say we believe, then for sure our lives would certainly be the richer for it, and the knock-on would be the people around us would be way more interested in our message. So let's pick up the story in Matthew 11, verse 1. I simply want to take a bit of time to, to walk through this story, going to make a few comments uh, as we go, then we're going to circle back round and tackle this question of how to move from doubt to trusting God in a place like Birmingham, which certainly isn't conducive to faith in Jesus. Does that sound like a plan? Okay, let's crack on then. Verse 1 of Matthew 11, when Jesus had finished giving these instructions to his 12 disciples, uh, if you want to know what those instructions are, later on you can go back to uh, chapters 8, 9, and 10 and have a look for yourself. But after he finished that, he went out to teach and preach in towns throughout the region. John the Baptist, who was in prison. Now, uh, we've got to read all the way through to chapter 14 to figure out why John was in prison. But the abridged version is that he was arrested by Herod. Herod was this puppet ruler set up by Rome to rule over Israel. And John's life message was essentially that God's king and his kingdom are right round the corner. And understandably, Herod didn't take too kindly to the thought of an alternative king. 
whole subplot was that Herod was also having this clandestine affair with his sister-in-law that resulted in him eventually divorcing his wife. And uh, John stood up in the public domain and called him out on this. Uh, So John was arrested to silence him on both counts. Verse 2, John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? In other words, John is experiencing doubt. John, who, if you remember, leapt in his mother Elizabeth's womb when Mary walked through the door pregnant with Jesus. John, who was standing right there in the Jordan River beside Jesus when there was this audible voice from the heavens saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. John, who one day saw Jesus approaching and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. John, who when some of his own closest friends and apprentices began leaving him to go and follow Jesus, and people said, are you all right with this? He said, of course I am. He must become greater. I must become less. That same John is having doubts. Why? What happened? What changed? Well, Matthew doesn't overtly tell us, but I think it's sort of implicit in this story that Jesus doesn't line up to John's expectations. Maybe it was because Jesus was eating and drinking with all the wrong people, or quite possibly John was expecting Jesus to rally a huge army and overthrow Rome and topple Herod from the throne and storm the prison and set John free. But instead, all the time, Jesus is out in the remote countryside on hillsides teaching and healing people, but all the time telling them to be quiet and not let anyone know. And so for whatever reason, Jesus doesn't line up with John's expectations and John is beginning to experience doubt. And so he sends some of his friends to find Jesus and ask him if he really is the Messiah or whether they should expect someone else. Verse 4, Jesus told them in response, go back to John and tell him what you've heard and seen. The blind see the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Now, here's the problem. John already knows that. And we've just read in verse 2, haven't we, that John had heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. So, that is not news to John. In fact, that's probably what prompted John's crisis of faith in the first place. These stories do not ease his doubt, they amplify it. The problem is Jesus is out doing all this exciting stuff and John is left to rot away in prison. Do you ever feel that way? 
Like, have you ever heard someone talking about God answering a prayer for something straight away, and there you are, you've been praying for the same thing for year after year after year without any sign of change? Well, we get someone up to the front here to share a dramatic story of God healing them, and, and you, you, you sort of want to celebrate, but you're struggling to because you've been desperately asking God to heal you, and despite your best prayers, nothing's happened. Or maybe you've been waiting on a dream from God, perhaps about a relationship or a job, about a kingdom thing, and, and, and it just feels like you're stuck. Uh, and someone else has a, a word from God, and three days later, it all comes true. And you're thinking, that's just not fair. Part of you wants to be happy for the other person, but part of you wonders where God is in all of this. I mean, has he forgotten about me? Is any of this even real? Is God really there? I think a lot of us can relate to this, can't we? And that's what John is grappling with here. John is right in that spot. And Jesus responds by telling him something he already knows. So what's going on beneath the surface? Well, I think it helps to understand that John was a prophet and Jesus was a rabbi. So they both would have been steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, I know this is kind of hard for us to, to fathom in this day and age where if you want to find anything out, you just Google it. You don't have to remember anything, just, just Google it and it's there uh, in front of you. But back then, it was standard practice to memorize vast, vast swathes of the Old Testament scriptures which kind of gives us a bit of an insight into what is really going on in verse 5, where Jesus says, the blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being pre preached to who? The poor. Now, depending on which scholar you read, this is a quote or an allusion or at least would have brought to mind a number of prophecies from Isaiah, in particular this famous one from Isaiah 61, that says this, that the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord God has anointed me, notice this, to bring good news to the, to the poor. See the similarity? It would appear that Jesus is deliberately referencing this passage from Isaiah, and the mention of that verse would have been a trigger. It would have immediately brought to mind the following verse, which says this, he has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. Now think about this. For John, languishing in captivity in prison, I'm pretty confident that's the verse he really wanted to hear Jesus reference. But Jesus stopped short of quoting it. It's like he's sending this message to John. He's saying, I am the Messiah from Isaiah that you are waiting for. I mean, look around you. Blind people are seeing, lame are walking, the deaf are hearing. But John, I'm not coming for you. There's not going to be any assault on the palace anytime soon. Now, just feel the weight of that. 
I mean, this would have been absolutely devastating for John. Just as it is for us when Jesus doesn't come through and do the things we want him to do or perhaps expect him to do. But then Jesus adds this, verse 6, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. The NIV translates this as, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. The ESV, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Or N.T. Wright's version is, and God bless you if you are not upset by what I'm doing. Or a different scholar, Bruna, puts it like this, God bless you if you don't throw the whole thing away because I'm a different kind of Messiah than you were expecting. And so Jesus' message to John, and by extension to us, is you are blessed, you are fortunate, you are happy, you are at peace when you don't fall away or stumble or get angry or throw in the towel when your life circumstances don't match your expectations. That's the message. And that's the end of the story as far as John's concerned. Verse 7, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. And so what follows isn't aimed at John, it's very much for us, the readers, and the crowds who were there listening. It's what Jesus said. What kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed swayed by every breath of wind? Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No, people with expensive clothes live in palaces. Were you looking for a prophet? Yes, and he's more than a prophet. John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare your way before you. Now, if you look in your footnotes in the Bible, it'll probably tell you this is a quote from the prophet Malachi from about the third or fourth century BC. Back in the uh, ancient world, uh, long before electronic communication, before a king would visit a city or a nation, a messenger would be sent ahead to get people ready for his arrival. And Malachi here prophesies about such a figure, a messenger coming to prepare the way for the promised Messiah. Later on, in fact, Malachi identifies this messenger as Elijah. And Jesus is saying, this is the equivalent of John. He says, I'll tell you the truth, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Yet even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. And from the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. For before John came, all the prophets and the law of Moses looked forward to this present time. And if you are willing to accept what I say, he is Elijah, the one the prophet said would come. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. In short, Jesus is saying that John marks the end of one era and the beginning of another. 
And it's better to be a nobody in the brand new era than the greatest man ever to have lived in the old one. Because if John is the equivalent of Elijah, then who does that make Jesus? The Messiah. Now here's the thing. If John got arrested for even suggesting another king was coming, what do you reckon would happen to Jesus if he actually stood up and declared himself to be that coming king? What would happen to him? He'd be arrested and killed, which of course is what did eventually happen to him. But for now, there's still some important work for him to do. And so he talks in way more cryptic terms but for his followers he wants them to get this and to live in the light of it which is why it says anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand so all that being said i want us now to move from john the baptist and the first century to us here in this room in the 21st century and i want us to look now at what we today can learn from all of this What can we learn? Well, I think the key line in this whole story is in verse 6. God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. Now, uh, I promise you we're going to end up there. But before we do, I just want to talk a little more about the doubts that gave cause for that verse in the first place. And so for what it's worth, here are just a couple of very quick comments on doubt. Comment number one. I suggest doubt is inevitable in our society. It's just inevitable. Jesus explains it in verse 12. The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. We know that God's kingdom has always been under attack. There has always been opposition to God's rule and reign in the world and there always will be. As we've seen, John was arrested. Later on, he was beheaded. Jesus himself was crucified. Pretty much all of Jesus' disciples were put to death by the Roman Empire. What's more, millions and millions in the early church were slaughtered during the first four centuries. And right now, even today, violence against followers of Jesus is at an all-time high. Some estimates put the figure at over 100,000 Christians a year being slaughtered, at the most part through Southeast Asia, parts of Africa and the Middle East. Here in the West, our bodies aren't under threat in that way, but our souls certainly are. There is still a war. We, we, We haven't got guns pointed against our heads but the cynicism all around us is like this constant assault on our face maybe it's just that with the sheer busyness of life you you find you have less and less time for God and before you know it the your passion for the things of God has just grown a bit dim and doubt slowly but surely begins to take over As Jesus put it, the the cares of this world, the desire for other things, and the deceitfulness of wealth, they choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. It's like this war of attrition. 
and doubt, I think, is one of the main tactics used to attack our faith in our culture. So doubt, it's just inevitable in our society. Second comment is this. I want to say that doubt isn't the same as unbelief. Doubt and unbelief are different. If you like, doubt is the struggle to believe. It's like the search for truth. You can't make yourself believe something. That's called stupidity or wishful thinking or brainwashing or whatever. So doubt is more like, I want to believe, I'm just not sure. Unbelief, on the other hand, is the stubborn refusal to believe. It's the denial of truth. Uh, Unbelief is more like, not only do I not believe, but I don't want to believe. In fact, I don't even want to hear it. And so at some point, you've got to honestly wrestle this through. If there's a God, do I want there? to be a God? Am I willing to accept him and believe in him? Because doubt and unbelief aren't the same thing, and Jesus treats them very differently. Notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke John for his doubt, like, how dare you? Don't you remember that time when we were standing in the Jordan River when you baptized me, God spoke from heaven, I mean, what's wrong with you, man? (laughs) There's none of that. He's incredibly gracious. Notice, he doesn't even say, blessed are those who never doubt. I mean, I'm just surmising here, but maybe that's not even a possibility. He effectively says, God blesses those who, when they doubt, do not fall away. So it might help to perhaps think of faith and doubt as companions on the journey. Each the aid to the other in the pursuit of truths. Now that being said, don't hear me wrong, not saying that as a result of this message I now want you all to go away and doubt more and more, (laughs) that's not the point. I'm, I'm just saying that there's good in it if it presses and moves us into the hunt for truth. You know, I think Jesus would be the first to say, follow the truth wherever it leads, not least because he also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I, for one, believe that if you follow the truth honestly, wherever it leads, it will eventually lead you right to the door of Jesus. And so, uh, sorry, I I can't stand here in front of you today and promise you from this point on a doubt-free life. I think as we probably prove doubt is inevitable in our society. But as we've also seen, it's not the same as unbelief. In fact, if we learn to work through our doubts, it often leads to a more robust, grounded faith than we had beforehand. So before I finish, I want to look at how to practically do that. How do we cultivate faith in a secular culture like ours that will keep fueling doubt. Uh, Four quick five points and then I'm done. Here's the first one. How do we cultivate faith in our secular culture? Number one, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. The message of our culture is very much to doubt our beliefs and believe our doubts. 
And admittedly, there, there is a time and a place to do that where it's healthy and mature and intelligent. But there is also a time and a place where we need to doubt our doubts and believe our beliefs. I mean, if you're in a situation where a part of you is saying that, I just don't know if I believe in this. And the other part of you is saying, well, deep down, I know it's true. I know I believe in this. Why should you go with the former rather than the latter? Why? Our culture is constantly preaching to us that doubt is sophisticated. Skepticism is for the educated and the mature, whereas faith is for the simple for the uneducated, for, for people from some bygone age or some backward culture. But where does that view come from? It's not like some scientific objective truth. It's simply a cultural bias against faith that is just not true or healthy. Doubt your doubts. Secondly, take steps to grow your faith. Notice when John doubted, Jesus said, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. And I suggest that for us today, that is still the best way to grow our faith. See the works of Jesus. Hear the words of Jesus. Of course, there are all sorts of ways to do that. Practices like reading the Bible every day. Admittedly, there'll be some days when you struggle to hear anything, but there'll be other days where it just resonates at a deep level. It's like you know truth when you hear truth. Read the Bible regularly. Just just do what you're doing now, coming here on a Sunday, being part of a life group. Those are huge aids to faith. You might Walk in on the back of a really tough week and you're beginning to doubt, but halfway through the worship, you're thinking, no, 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 I'm not crazy. I I forgot about that truth. This is real. It's one of the reasons why we're here week after week after week. That's why we take time to open up the scriptures. It reorients us to the truth. Another practice is reading books by people cleverer than us who believe in Jesus. There are a few suggestions for uh, any readers that there are in the room. The uh, Reason for God or Making Sense of God by Tim Keller, uh, Simply Christian by N.T. Wright, Mere Christianity, classic book by C.S. Lewis, uh, The God Who Is There by D.A. Carson. I tell you, uh, I, I read those books in seasons of doubt, and as I read them, I find my faith stimulated and it grows. Even if you're not a reader, just hearing stories of God at work is fuel on the fire for a life of faith. For example, this time last year, my uh, mum had uh, a pretty severe life-altering stroke. Uh, it looked like uh, she, she might not be able to walk uh, again uh, and it suddenly looked like she wouldn't be able to look after herself and live in her home by herself. Uh, six or seven weeks later, um, she uh, returned home from hospital, uh, and the consultant described her recovery 
as an almost spontaneous recovery. I think we might have slightly different vocabulary for that, but an almost spontaneous recovery. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, I walked uh, three and a half miles with my mum, and uh, she, she's still uh, bearing some of the consequences from the stroke. I mean, it's not perfect, but never would have believed that would have been possible this time last year. Uh, earlier in the week, uh, I spent some time with Rob Davey, uh, a good friend of mine, a, a friend of the church here, uh, now leads a church over in Solihull. Uh, and he was describing how uh, earlier on this year, um, a, a guy prayed for him that God would reverse the aging process. Uh, that's, that's a prayer we'd all like, isn't it? <laughs> um, and uh, anyway, I think if someone prayed that for me, I would have thought, yeah, right. Uh, but prayed that. Uh, a little while later, um, Rob was driving home at night uh, and he became increasingly frightened because he couldn't see. Um, and so he was praying, God, help me get home safely. I think I would have stopped the car <laughs> and got someone to pick me up, but uh, he, he kept driving, although he couldn't see, and he did get home safely. And uh, he, he was pretty agitated by this, so booked an appointment with his opticians pretty urgently. Um, the opticians did all the tests on his eyes and said, uh, we're going to have to send you for more tests. And he got even more concerned. I mean, what, what's going on? Uh, it transpired, um, his eyes have recovered uh, to the point of where they were, I think, 25 years ago. The reason he couldn't see is because his glasses were, <laughs> were not the right glasses for the state of his eyes right now. Uh, as a result of this, uh, his optician, I don't know if his optician's been to church yet, but it wants details of the church. I mean, can't explain what has happened there. There are so many stories where the universe must have my back really isn't a plausible explanation. Like, I'm more prepared to give credit to a tree out there than to the God who created it all. I mean, seriously? There's so many stories which there is no good rational explanation other than Jesus is exactly who he said he is. He's, he's not dead. He's alive. He's very much at work in the world. We, we need to see the works of Jesus, hear the words of Jesus, look at what he's doing and allow it to stimulate our faith. If nothing else, just look back over your own life. Remember all the things that God has done for you in seasons of faith and trust that he hasn't changed, even though right now you might be in a season of doubt. And if you can't do that, just hang out with people who have faith. If you don't have faith, get with people who do and let their faith carry you for a while. Now, of course, there comes a point where you can't just rely on the faith of others. You need a faith of your own. But being around people of faith can kickstart your faith again. So doubt your doubts. Take some active steps to grow your faith. Thirdly, stay emotionally healthy. I suggest doubt is as much emotional as it is intellectual. I really don't think it's a coincidence that John began to doubt when he was tired and hungry and in prison. D.A. Carson uh, has a book on doubt, and he lists ten reasons for doubt. You know what's seventh on the list? Of course you don't. You haven't read the book. Let me tell you. Uh, seventh on the list is sleep 
deprivation. Dear Carson says this, doubt may be fostered by sleep deprivation. If you keep burning the candle at both ends, sooner or later you'll indulge in more and more mean cynicism. And the line between cynicism and doubt is a very thin one. If you're among those who become nasty, cynical, or even full of doubt when you are missing your sleep, you are morally obligated to get the sleep you need. We are whole complicated beings. Our physical existence is tied to our spiritual well-being, to our mental outlook, to our relationships with others, including our relationship with God. Sometimes the godliest thing you can do in the universe is get a good night's sleep. You just need to take care of your whole self. Stay emotionally healthy. And then fourthly, I think it helps to define success in all of this as trust rather than certainty. Trust rather than certainty. Listen, knowledge of truth doesn't require certainty. Like, I know that the earth is, I think, 93 million miles from the sun. How do I know that? I mean, obviously I've never been there. I haven't got my tape measure out and extended it and measured it. How do I know that? I don't know it with absolute certainty, but I trust the teacher who taught me at school and the people at Southside who last week corrected me when I misread my notes, missed out the million and said the sun was just 93 miles away. I, 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 I trust them as, well, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be here right now. Similarly, I don't know with absolute certainty that there is a God. Just as the atheist doesn't know with absolute certainty that there isn't. But that doesn't mean we don't have knowledge of the truth. Let's be honest. One of the trickiest things about life in general, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, is that we sometimes have to make a 100% commitment with less than 100% certainty. For example, every time you get on an aeroplane, that's the case. Uh, sorry if you're just about to get one this next week, but that is the case. Or, or on your wedding day, you, you don't have 100% certainty that you're a good match and you're going to have a great life together, but you still make a 100% commitment until death do us part for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. I mean, think about what you're saying. You, you can't be certain how it's going to work out, but at some point you just have to make a commitment. You know, we have this term, don't we? People of faith. But all of us, every single one of us, is a person of faith. I mean, you, you have to have faith just to live. Faith is simply reliance on somebody or something else as reality to in some way depend upon or base your life around. And you need this kind of faith just to make it through each and every day. Like, I've got faith that I'm going to drive home in my car after this meeting. I'm assuming that I'll be in a fit state to drive and that the aging process hasn't been reversed and I can't see anymore, or 
Uh, I'm assuming my car won't have been stolen or that any of you won't slip out later on and slash the tyres. I might be wrong, but looking around, I, I, I think I'm probably about 95, 96% certain. You see, we all live by faith. Or perhaps a better way of putting it would be that we all live by trust. So I don't think Jesus calls us to 100% certainty, to a life with no doubt ever. He simply calls us to trust him. Not just to trust our ideas about him, which may or may not be right. I mean, a bunch of us said we believe different things to one another in this room. But to trust him, the person. Our point is that the end goal isn't a life free of doubt, but a life full of trust. And so Jesus says to us, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. Really, it's an invitation to you and to me to simply trust him. And Jesus doesn't meet your expectations. When life is hard, and it is hard at times, when the dream is crushed, when the marriage, the job, the church, the relationship, the business venture doesn't work out, when you're pretty confused, when you're still waiting, when it feels like you are stuck, when the diagnosis isn't good, when you live with the tension of unanswered questions, when that moment comes, and it will for all of us, the invitation from Jesus is to trust. Some of you, you're in that place right now, and the invitation to you is to trust. Sometimes there's a cross for us to bear. Sometimes it's just having to keep waiting on God another week, another month, another year, another decade. Sometimes it's just desperately clinging on to the truth that God's grace is sufficient for today and for tomorrow. Wherever you're at, the invitation to each and every one of us is to trust, to not fall into sin, to not walk away from God, but instead to trust, to sit and to wait. Whatever comes, comes, but we're okay, happy even, because the settled condition of our heart is to live in reliance on the goodness of God.